I'm thrilled to introduce today our first uh, panel discussion, uh, where we'll be discussing the current challenges of fixed income portfolios and suggested ways uh, to extract value within them. Uh, needless to say, uh, that uh, the current environment has been dreadful to traditional fixed income portfolios and you have a list of issues that are ramping up against uh, these traditional fixed income portfolios, uh, to name a few, rising interest rates, soaring inflation, widening credit spreads across the board, uh, increasing uh, accelerated default rates, notably in Asia, tapering on top of that, and potential liquidity issues. Um, to this effect, uh, we're more than happy to hear the views of our three guests today. Uh, Philippe Despinard, uh, Head of Asset Management in uh, London at UBP. Uh, Doug Pardon, uh, Co-CIO of Brigade uh, Capital Management. And uh, Fabrice Rotari, CEO of SCORE Investment Partners. The panel be, will be moderated by Nicolas Faller, Co-CEO of Asset Management at UBP. With this, Nicolas, I'll leave you the floor. Thank you, Nicolas. Uh, you have seen, uh, as Nicolas said, uh, the first quarter, which was probably the worst quarter in the fixed income since 1994. So I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to give a little bit some uh, perspective on the, on the fixed income market. Um, I would start with Fabrice. Um, you're the CEO of SCORE Investment Partner, but you're also uh, instrumental in the way SCORE is managing its fixed income book, so the reinsurance uh, company. Uh, how you how do you cope with such a volatility on the 10 years bond? Because I think that there's probably, from an insurance standpoint, a wish to lock uh, sovereign yield at a decent price and reduce your credit volatility. So there's probably something interesting to lock. But with this volatility, well, how do you cope with that? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, maybe just to, just to, to start with some few words regarding, you know, who we are as an investor. So we are mainly fixed income, as you said. We have 55% uh, of our assets in the US dollar, very much concerned by what is happening in the US. The target duration we've got is pretty short as being a reinsurance company. Uh, so it's more in the three to five, uh, to five years area. So the first thing for us, is, it's a bit structural, is that to face with volatility, we've got what we call the rollover strategy, meaning that as of today, uh, nearly half of uh, the assets we are managing are maturing within the next 24 months. So meaning that we have this capacity to reinvest at new, uh, at new levels if, if it was to happen. Um, having said that, I'm a bit surprised by uh, the poll. Uh, only 11% seems to think that uh, the U.S. Treasury tenure could go uh, above 3.5. So to me, it means that there is a high level of trust in the, the central banker's capacity to fight inflation, uh, which is a, a bit of a surprise to me. So uh, if you are all right, uh, this is a, a pretty good news, I guess. Um, knowing that uh, for the, the last year, uh, they... They fail uh, a little bit, uh, knowing that the CPI release yesterday was above 8%. And I'm pretty sure that one year ago, uh, nobody was expecting such a, such a, a level of CPI uh, one year forward. Um, of course, uh, they change a bit their mind, uh, the central bankers. They are a bit more hawkish. Uh, so we are talking now about 50 bips uh, uh, of increase uh, and maybe 75, why not, uh, to curve inflation. Um, 
to me, the critical thing, and it's really something that we have in mind when looking at the at the at our fixed income exposure. Uh, the critical thing is that uh, inflation expectation uh, start to be encored uh, by economic agents. If it was to be the case, then the only way to fight inflation is to push nominal rates above inflation, meaning to to reach a level where real yield uh, become positive. As you can imagine, if the CPI stay at 7 or 8%, it means that the tenure should be above this level, which will be dramatic, I guess, for, for the, the, the fixed income market and the market as a whole. So that's why, uh, uh, in terms of strategy today, uh, we increase our exposure to uh, the short part of the US curve, so three-year, four-year maturity, on single-leg corporate bonds. Uh, so it's not very exciting, uh, but at least uh, we're able to capture yield uh, at 3.6%, around uh, a level that is uh, close to be 100 bips higher than what you were able to catch uh, buying a double B uh, uh, in the US last summer. So no real incentive for us to take more credit risk, so we stay a bit cautious and we we skip with our strategy, uh, our rollover strategy, in order to be able to uh, to uh, to reinvest if yields were to uh, to to really uh, increase uh, material. Thank you, um, Doug. Um, we are hearing a word a word that we have almost forgotten over the last 20 years is stagflation. I'm not saying that we're entering a stagflation, but more and more people are scared about stagflation. Uh, what would be stagflation, uh, what would be the impact on credit volatility? How you would see this uh, in the credit space? Sure. Um, and are you believing into a risk of stagflation? So stagflation, I think, Undoubtedly, incredibly negative for fixed income markets. Um, you've got to, you know, depending on the extent of it, obviously would would depend how severe. But you know, typical recessions, uh, credit, def you know, uh, default rates and and credit, and specifically high yield, which is the area that we focus on, can reach you know ten, eleven, twelve percent um, in a default cycle. On top of that, um, it's going higher because those input costs for all of those companies. Um, and corporate America is a lot harder. So you could, you know, in my mind, it would it would create defaults um, if we're talking about persistent inflation, you know, well in excess of that and into sort of the, you know, global financial crisis. Um, I am not a believer of, you know, severe stagflation. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, the the results are not inconsistent with our views, but it really is about, I think, inflation expectations. And you had, you know, effectively a CPI, you know, number yesterday that was higher than expectations, you have bond yields down, you know, 20 basis points. Um, I think that there is demand destruction going on in the economy. I think, you know, you just look at mortgage rates, what's going on there. You look at borrowing costs for companies. Any company that's looking to borrow money in the U.S. right now, if you're a high-yield issuer, the market's closed. And if you're an investment-grade issuer, you're paying the most you've had to pay in, in quite some time. So I do feel like financial conditions have tightened. You think about the wealth effect, stock market, you know, NASDAQ down 25% year-to-date, 
S&P down 17% north of 20, you know, going back to the fourth quarter of last year. You know, the economy is slowing, and it, I feel like that has to have an impact on inflation. Um, and you look about, you think about just the, compar- like this in- inflation peaking story, I, I do believe it. You just kind of look at the comparisons as we get further out through the year. I'm not sure we're going to get to the target, uh, the Fed target of 2 to, you know, 2%, um, but I don't think we're going to be sitting here with 7 or 8% inflation next year. There's an area we have not yet touched, which is also, of course, part of the fixed income is emerging market. And I see very much some contradictory uh, um, pattern on the emerging markets, which is on the one hand, China slowed down, which is very negative, Ukraine war, which is negative. On the other hand, a lot of emerging market, they are long commodity. And some of them, they have started already last year to increase interest rates, so they are not in the same stage of the cycle. So, Philippe, what, what is for you the view on emerging markets? What emerging fixed income markets can navigate within this current environment? Well, I, I think firstly, just thinking of emerging markets and lumping all of them in one word is quite tricky. I mean, we're talking about some countries like Singapore, Korea, and then you're talking about countries which are way down the, the credit the credit spectrum. There's dozens of them, very varied circumstances. Um, so you're right to point out, firstly, uh, when inflation started turning up in emerging markets, they tightened rates straight away. They've seen inflation cycles. They know how to handle them. They didn't, didn't have the same issues that uh, the ECB or the Fed or the Bank of England had. They just tightened rates. Um, and it's, it's partly why in the first quarter, local, local emerging markets, uh, local bonds had the best, you know, had the best performance of all sectors, even positive returns. Um, you know, when you take account the local currencies, because they've already started addressing inflation, whereas we're way behind, behind the curve. Um, that said, if you think of the sovereign spreads, uh, particularly the high investment grade countries, which are tightly related to U.S. treasuries, you know, a global slowdown, an increase in interest rate, tightening liquidity globally, that's not good for emerging markets generically. Um, so uh, I think you have to be cautious about emerging markets, but we talked about looking for value. Um, and there's plenty of, plenty of countries who have probably better and sounder economic management than we give them credit for. And if we're a little bit patient, I think we'll get to see great returns in those countries. Uh, Fabrice, um, if the central bank will continue to pull out money, uh, which they normally should do, do you see any risk of liquidity crisis in the market and something that we could be see as uh, another big problem in the market? Uh, uh, very difficult to answer. Uh, I don't want to be too bearish, but uh, um, I think that uh, when you look at the Fed, they, they, they said that they're going to decrease the, the balance sheet by a trillion per year, roughly. And, uh, and, and, and first, if we look at some, uh, some studies, it's a, a bit the equivalent in terms of economic impact of something like 150 bips of tightening per trillion. So uh, first, it has also an impact on, 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 the, on the economy. It's also a tightening of, of, of market condition. Regarding liquidity, uh, I think recently we've seen some, some, some swap spread widening, and I guess that's, that's uh, a, an area that we have to, to, to be focused on. 
but for, for the time being, uh, I don't expect a, a kind of uh, uh, 07, 08 uh, crash in terms of, uh, of, of liquidity. That's not, uh, not uh, yet uh, our, our, our view. Duke, um, there's something which is today not really on the top of the agenda, but um, um, it was something that um, could always be a, a source of turbulence is the mortgage-backed securities market, which is very big in the US. How you would see this market today? Is it, is it healthy? Is it fragile? What is the risk that uh, uh, we, we could have a problem coming from here? Yeah, I think, frankly, I think it's it's quite healthy, um, and I think the you know, you know, the flushing out of that um, you know asset class that took place obviously in the in the financial crisis um, was was pretty significant um, from a, the overall sort of housing market um, in the U.S. is is quite strong, driven primarily by a lack of inventory. Um, you know, consumers today are, you know, frankly, that is the that is where the health of the economy is today. You think about um, the job market, um, employment. You know, pretty much jobs are plentiful available. Savings rates are up, um, but in just generally speaking, it's it's a healthy market, and we're seeing, you know, frankly, we're seeing value, um, you know, down the capital stack there um, in the mortgage market. Feel free if you want to add on any topic, anything, feel free. I won't challenge this <laughs> guy on the US market. Philippe, uh, yeah. don't want to, to, to be uh, irrespective, but you probably have the longest history uh, in running fixing <laughs> 30 right years plus. Um, yesterday, Norman highlighted the highly likely risk for him that we can very much leave for a period of time of uh, negative real interest rate, meaning that the Fed or the central bank will keep interest rates low and accept that real interest rate will stay negative for some time. Do you, do you believe it's a scenario that could, uh, could take place? So I, be I believe that central banks will try to keep rates from real rates from being too high because of government indebtedness. I mean, uh, you know, if you think about the drivers of volatility today, and, and uh, Fabrice mentioned one of them, one of them is obviously a big turn in policy. Uh, rates are rising and quantitative tightening, as in you withdrawing liquidity. Right? This is a massive turn in policy. Now. Um, governments, and that's true with the U.S., it's true for most European governments, have now debt-to-GDP ratios of 100, around 100%. Um, you know, I know Germany isn't there, but and Switzerland certainly not, but on average, that's where they are. And of course, you have some countries that are um, above that. Um, the, the, the whole balance, the whole Maastricht Treaty balance, where you had 2% inflation, 3% growth, and you could live with those interest rates, I mean, it was all in 60% debt-to-GDP. That was sort of the you know, Goldilocks scenario. We're so far away from that uh, that the, the the basis of monetary policy today has to be that okay, we need to tighten, we need to slow uh, demand, and and so on. But we cannot afford uh, to cause a deep recession uh, because the only way to pay for you know, restoring the economy is going to be through issuing even more debt, right? And so, and we there was another thing we saw last night, which is the the way to pay for the expenses we've incurred during the COVID and some of the past deficits of the financial crisis, plus the investments we have to make uh, in uh, energy transition, which are massive, you know, trillions. Um, and lastly, p potentially rearming ourselves 
for less certain world, uh, which is also hundreds of billions <laughs> for the rest of the world, that can only be paid for if rates stay negative in real in real terms, right? Otherwise, it's just not, you know, there's not enough savings in the world uh, or tax rates have to shoot up to 60%, which is not acceptable politically. So I think central banks will do the responsible thing. They'll do, they'll react to the economic cycle, but they will prevent official rates anyway from uh, going too far. The, the question is whether market rates the long-dated long part of the curve where the central banks are normally absent. Uh, we've gotten used to this idea they could suppress volatility there. Now we can see what volatility looks like when they're not in the market. And um, I think that is the biggest question is whether market rates will tolerate to be uh, negative and below inflation. Now today, if you look at the forward price for inflation over the next five years, it's about between three and three and a quarter in Europe and the US, probably four and change in the UK. Um, that has been very steady last few months, so you can tell there's no disanchoring of those expectations. Um, and as long as that's the case, I think market rates at 3% are just about there. They can, you can have an uneasy equilibrium. Um, but we cannot afford rates to be highly positive. I mean, society, governments, whatever, cannot afford that. So I think central banks will keep rates, real rates negative. There's just no choice. Plus the green, the green inflation, where we know that we will have to spend a lot for topic we discussed before. Yeah. Marie, do you want to add something? Yeah, if I may, I think that we, we, we all want, you know, Nayil uh, to, to stay where they are. Uh, having said that, uh, having a negative real yield, you're just feeding inflation. So uh, uh, it means that uh, to curve inflation, uh, you, if, once again, if inflation expectations are encored by economic agents. And it seems that it's emerging at least in the US where there is at least the beginning of a kind of a, a cycle between, between wages and prices. Uh, and if it was to be confirmed, then we're going to be a bit in a trouble because central bankers will have no choice but to increase yield massively, even if, and, and it means that we're going to have a, a, a strong correction in the market. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really key for me uh, to see if inflation expectations stay where they are. So meaning that everybody is expecting that inflation will be curved and that it will, it will land at 3% or, or a bit below. Uh, if that was to change, then I guess the, the, the curve will steepen as well quite dramatically with some consequences on the mortgage uh, market. Um, so to me, we are really in a critical, critical year. That's why I think that uh, uh, having a risky uh, strategy is not uh, the, the good positioning uh, right now. Duke, anything you want to add on that topic? Or? <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I, I largely agree. I definitely agree on the position of there's a lot of unknowns here. I think we're all talking about, you know, stagflation. Truth be told, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I'm, I was probably just a a baby when stagflation uh, took place. But, but most people uh, were not professional. Most people in the marketplace today were not professional investors during stagflation. So the, the idea that there's a number of experts managing money on this topic is, is just a fallacy. So I think I would just say our general view um, is one of caution, um, certainly. Um, there are a lot of risks out there. There's credit rate. There's really you know a couple of risks in, in, in fixed income. There's certainly in corporate. There's credit risk and interest rate risk. Um, you know, for the last 12 months, 
um, or even 18 months coming out of the pandemic, we were much more comfortable taking credit risk and being underweight interest rate risk. Today, credit risk doesn't seem all that exciting, um, and interest rate risk is a bit unknown. Um, so I do think, um, I think stepping into the market today after the sell-off that we've seen, I do, you know, this, this idea is where is their pockets of value a little bit. Um, and we're more comfortable with interest rate risk today and less comfortable with credit risk. So we favor the, you know, we've been wanting to not be in, you know, investment grade or double B credits, but I think that that's where, if there's some value today, um, you know, double B bonds, corporate, um, even if we go into a recession, you're, you're starting to get paid, you know, some yield, you know, 6%. And at the end of the day, fixed income is fixed income. These are contractual obligations, you know, coupons get paid. Um, and the, the probability of default on the higher quality part of the market is quite low. Over the last three, four years, there's a group of investment solution that were very much favored because of very low yield, even negative yield is all the group of what I call alternative fixed income, which is from private debt, infrastructure debt, uh, real estate debt, long short credits, factoring, all this kind of thing. Do you believe that with uh, a normalization on interest rates, potentially a 10-year bond at three and a half, four, do you believe that this could be a uh, the beginning of uh, a bear market for the, those strategy, and do you believe that people will get out or not allocating more capital because they are now enough with the rest? Philip, maybe start. Yeah, it for everybody. So, so I don't think I don't think that's so much the, the risk as. So let me give you an example. I'm I'm on the board of this uh, pension fund, right, which has very long liabilities. And, uh, and the pension fund has bought very long duration securities. Some of them are inflation linked to match those liabilities. Today, uh, the fact that you own long duration, and it would be the case if you're a life insurance, obviously that's not the case for score, but if you're a life insurance company, you have eight, nine years duration, you own assets similar. Um, and if you own, whether they're private or, 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 uh, or public assets, they don't get mark to market the same, but ultimately you are matching uh, similar cash flows with similar obligations. So as long as these, a lot of these strategies are held by people who, for whom that is obviously that you're, you're meeting an investment objective, I don't think, I don't think they're particularly at risk. Um, so I know, for example, life insurance companies did a lot of infrastructure finance, long duration, triple B, industrial quality, uh, at very low rates. But again, they're backing a book which has the same duration. So in some sense, that's less risky. The... The shorter duration classes like factoring and, and your short rotation, um, that those rates will go up, but these assets renew every 90 days or every 180 days. You know, they renew, they, they rotate. If rates go up, then the, the, the rate accompanies this. So it's the, you have the same rollover uh, quality that uh, Fabrice mentioned about his book of business as well. So as long as they're held by the right actors, I don't think they're at risk. Um, the biggest risk is they're held by the wrong people uh, for the wrong reasons, and that's you know it's difficult to predict. Fabrice, want to add something? Uh, yeah, uh, I guess for, for, for me, one one point as well is that uh, what could be the the consequences of uh, more inflation on credit quality. And then, uh, if you are on, uh, invested in a liquid asset and, and, and you are a, an investor that can get in and out from the market, then uh, going into uh, illiquid uh, credits, it's a bit too risky to me today. I think that 
we could maybe see a bit less interest from investor for, let's say, pure private credit compared to the, the, the previous years. I share your, your view. I mean, infra, uh, infra is something that we, we do like uh, because infra, uh, especially infrastructure uh, uh, loans, you, you've got uh, uh, very long-term contracts with agreed purchase price and with indexation and inflation. So meaning that the credit quality of uh, the project you're financing is not safe from inflation, but at least you've got a, a high level of protection, which is not really the case when you, you, you lend to, to a corporate. Um, so uh, that's why in this space, uh, we favor, uh, we favor uh, infra. Doug? I think, I mean, the proliferation of private debt, I think, was driven by you know, primarily two factors. I think one was just a lack of yield in traditional fixed income. Um, and the second one is, I think, you know, liquid fixed income comes with volatility and when you you know make a private loan it's you know marked at 100 cents in the dollar and you just you know hold to maturity and frankly you know you know, the idea that you know traditional liquid fixed income markets are down you know high quality down 15 20% year to date yet you know and high yield you know 10 or 12 or something and that your private credit portfolio is perfectly you know the same value that it was 6 months ago is you know obviously i think you know, not accurate. So um, I do think the, the pendulum always in things, you know, the pendulum shifts, you know, too far. Um, but, but, but the private credit managers, there's, there's, they're, you know, excellent underwriters, you know, it, I think it's, um, it's a fine place to be. But the one thing with, with private, your, your money's locked. So we're talking about, you know, seeing value now in an investment grade. How do you, how do you do that? Obviously, you have an asset allocation model. But I certainly think that um, it's markets like this that I think will, you know, pique people's interest back into the more liquid parts of the market, and there, there, there's more value today than there was. Um, thank you very much, Fabrice, Duke, Philippe.